Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex Yantafi. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of Gender Stories. I am thrilled. I know I'm always excited, thrilled, enthusiastic, but that's just how I roll to be interviewing Lucy Fielding today. She's a white, queer, non-binary femme and a resident in counseling practicing in Charlottesville. Lucy received her master's in counseling psychology at Pacifica Graduate Institute, and she also holds a PhD in French from Northwestern University, where she specialized in 18th century literature, histories of sexuality, and erotic literature. Her background in literature and history attunes her to the many ways that image, metaphor, and cultural scripts shape and inform the narratives we carry with us as we move through the world, as well as how these narratives inscribe themselves on our bodies. She's the author of Transsex, Clinical Approaches to Transsexualities and Erotic Embodiments, which is going to be coming out uh, in May 2021, and it's published by Routledge. And I had the privilege to actually read the book towards the end of 2020, and I loved it. I endorsed it 100%, actually, I would say 1,000%. So I'm so excited that now I get to have a conversation with you, Lucy. Welcome on Gender Stories. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. This is such a thrill. Well, when you sent me the email and you said, will you, you know, read my book? And if you like it, endorse it. I was like, absolutely. We need this book out into the world. And then when I read it, I was kind of blown away. But I want people to know from you what motivated you to write it in the first place. Because I sure felt that it was needed. But I'd love to know your story of what motivated you to write this book. Sure. Well, I, um, when I started my gender transition or um, my gender journey, I was, um, I was also beginning a professional transition transition. Um, and so I had this very weird placement where I was on the one hand, you know, in therapy and, um, seeing medical professionals as part of my gender transition Mm -hmm. and like doing HT and things like that. And, um, and then I was, simultaneously attaining, uh, attending all these trainings for um, becoming a therapist and particularly a sex therapist. And so I would, I would talk to my providers and as great as they were, as great as they are, and I feel so privileged to have the providers I, I, I do. Um, some of them are, are freaking unicorns. They're great. Um, I I noticed that so much of what they were telling me was unnuanced or just plain incorrect. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't that they were trying to be willfully misleading. It was just that like, there's so little research and clinical writing 
um, and sexological and sex education writing and content that is geared specifically for queer and trans folks. And um, so like you open up any of the wonderful um, major like sex ed books yeah. of the last 10 years. And a lot of them um, will include like um, an apology at the beginning <laughs> that says like, I am talking primarily about cis women or cis men. And I am, I would love to talk about trans folks. And I imagine that some of the things are translatable, but um, there's just not the research base. And I was just tired of reading that. And I was really tired of of being placed in a position. And especially as I became, uh, as I started seeing clients as a therapist in training, um, being put in this position of having to extrapolate from cis experiencing and not just cis experiencing, but cis head experiencing and not just cis head, but white, able-bodied, thin, young, so like there were so many bodies that were left out of the conversation. And I really wanted us, trans and non-binary folks, gender expansive folks more generally, to have, you know, like a first thing. Like I I I do not think that this is the final word on on this subject. I hope it's the first of many. I hope people read it and find things that they would that they would want to add things that i missed because i'm a white femme and um you know with a phd and a masters and like we have heard a lot from people who look and sound like me and um so i fully expect and i fully hope that this will be just the first um of many that seek to um shift the conversation. And there have already been, you know, like in, in community resources, there are mm -hmm. zines like um, Mirabelle Weathers fucking trans women. There's the trans sex zine, um, the two volumes of that. There's going to be um, later this year, a trans kink zine, which I'm really excited about. And, um, and then, you know, there were of course resources like Tumblr that completely um, went the way of the dodo as soon as FOSTA SESTA went into place, yes. uh, into effect. Um, and so we have all of these community resources, but one of the things that I'm really struck by is that again, because of my particular social and professional location, I had the ability to question my providers, um, and to ask them questions based on what I was reading and what I knew as a trainee in, in sex education and sex therapy. And I recognize that not everyone has that knowledge and not everyone is comfortable, you know, calling out their therapist um, just as, and let alone their endocrinologist or their surgeon. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love what you said. And, you know, it's it's that paradox, too. I, I really appreciate what you said in terms of, you know, kind of in, in some ways your voice, uh, you know, being 
you know, being white and it's, it's a voice that's often more heard, but also it's that paradox where, but also not like there are not a lot of trans voices in the field. So I want to make something really clear that there are actually not a lot of trans providers writing about um, therapy with trans folks and even fewer trans sex therapists writing about doing this work with trans folks. So it's it's a both end, right? Of and even like fewer trans exactly. feminine folks. Absolutely. I was about to say that. And then if we, you know, there's some, um, I think there are way more kind of uh, folks who are AFAB, like myself, as and female birth, and who are transmasculine or non-binary, but very few actually trans feminine voices, I feel, in our field. And so mm-hmm. I was really excited to see your book, and not only because of your voice, which I think it's powerful and uh, insightful and I feel like I have 10 questions I want to ask you once in my brain right now. So I'm going to pick a direction and then go back to some of the other stuff. But one of the things that you do in your book, which I love, is that you bring in other voices too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, say a little bit more to the listeners about how you structure the book, because I love that. And then I want to go back also to talking about sexology and sex therapy and how we produce knowledge. And I want to have a whole conversation about that. But I want to talk about your book a little bit more and this beautiful thing that you do with them, um, really bringing in multiple voices in your book. Cool. Thank you for that opportunity to talk about that. And so the way that it's structured is that the um, it's six chapters in an introduction. And, um, and then, you know, like there's a glossary at the end. Um, and chapter one is really about, um, you know, almost a literature review, but it's yes. like, it's a discursive review. So like, what is, what are the cultural scripts around transsexualities? What are, what is mm-hmm. the history of, of this and how does this show up in the room with us and always already inform how we're working with folks? Then chapters two through five are really presenting a model, um, a series of frameworks on how to, um, how I propose, you know, one can um, as a provider. And I mean provider very expansively. Like Mm -hmm. usually when we talk about like when folks at WPATH will talk about a multidisciplinary team or MDT, we're usually talking about therapists and medical providers. And, you know, I think about this other providers that, um, that we're likely to um, interface Mm -hmm. with. So like pelvic floor PTs, sexological body workers, professional dominance, surrogate partners. Um, And, and so like, I and and ancestral healing traditions because yeah. like I think we assume so much that like our clients even have access to the kind of you know um to mental health services and insurance and 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 access to um certain transition pathways um and so like or even want to pursue certain transition pathways um and so like um I wanted to make space for ancestral healing traditions and non-Western colonialist, settler colonialists in particular, approaches 
And I also wanted to keep in mind that, like, again, I'm a white trans femme. And, um, and I wanted trans mask voices, um, non-binary folks um, of every presentation that I could, you know, engage. Um, and I wanted folks who were, you know, who represented that multidisciplinary team. In many ways, I succeeded um, insofar as like, it's a, it's a nice group of, of providers. And I'm so privileged to have worked with this group of providers. And I also recognize that part of like what you were saying about, you know, who, who is working at the intersection of gender affirmative care and sexuality, who is also trans or non-binary, mm-hmm. who is also, um, uh, you know, who also occupies other social locations yeah. and, um, and, and, um, and that is increasingly, it, it's an increasingly small group. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, um, I'm not making excuses. I am saying that, that I've got to do better. And we, as, as a, as professionals have to do better in terms of, really making it possible for say BIPOC and disabled folks to um, and elder folks to come into the field and be um, and, and be centered and have voice and have those voices. Um, I want to stand up so that others can, and Mm -hmm. I can sit down. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I feel like your, your book, is powerful on many levels. I love that it offers a framework for providers. I love that it is the really broad definition of providers that you just described, but then you also bring in as many other voices as possible. And that is something that is different from kind of single author books in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that I, I often struggle with a similar issue when I write by myself or with Mac John, right? Where we only have our own locations and also how can we bring in voices from community, right? And from a much broader perspective and as well as collaborate and um, and kind of create more and more space in our field because our field definitely has a cis problem, which I think you were starting to talk about, you know, sex therapy is pretty cis-centered, you know, and, uh, and you get a lot of this kind of apologies or maybe this can apply and, you know, recently, I think there is a little bit of a shift, like the latest um, edition of the Quickies handbook for sex therapy, kind of, well, ask the cis colleague who asked me to write with them. <laughs> so a shout out to Kristen Benson for being a really great ally, right? Because often people don't even know that there are trans folks out there doing the work. And it kind of brings me to this other question that, you know, you were mentioning how a lot of people apologize and say, well, there isn't much research, right? Mm-hmm. So this idea that all we know is just research-based, but like you said, there is so much, there is actually so much material out there in community. There are zines, there are articles, there are people in practice who are writing blog posts, there are videos uh, their lived experiences. And that is an incredible body of knowledge that's already out there that people could access, right? And this idea that we only 
access knowledge in this package way here. I mean, it, I'm really happy that you have a book from Routledge, but it's almost like you have to kind of package it for these providers and say, here, here's some knowledge so that you don't have to go to 500 places that you might not even be aware of, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it is a specific way of packaging the knowledge, right? And I'm, I'm curious about Where did you feel that tension, if you found that tension? Sometimes I know I feel it as an author, right? I'm like, I know those things, and those things are not necessarily based in research, but I know them from community, and I'm bringing them to a field that is so research and evidence-based. Like, How did you navigate that if you found that tension as well? Yeah, I, I think so one strategy was just to make a number of assumptions that like some of the cis authors couldn't make. Um, for example, um, you know, Emily Nagoski, who also endorsed the book. Um, I love her book, Come As You Are, and it's coming out in a second edition. And please run out and buy that. It's wonderful. <laughs> and like, um, she, for example, like when she's talking about desire templates and, mm -hmm. you know, responsive desire versus spontaneous desire, like she's talking about cis folks and, but why is it that we're still talking about like as providers, um, drive theory, libido, mm -hmm. you know, like, especially when we're talking about like, um, hormone therapy, you know, like if, if you're doing masculinizing hormones, your libido is going to go through the roof and you're going to be some out of control sex beast and, um, with rage issues, apparently, um, you know, <laughs> I, I, that's absolutely, that's a stereotype that a lot of people hear. And I hear it from clients too. I'm scared to go on testosterone because what if I start raging. And I'm like, I don't think you know what testosterone does. And the magic words for me as a mental health therapist, this is not my scope of practice. However, <laughs> let's talk hormones for a moment. Absolutely. Exactly. You yeah. know, and, um, and, you know, for like, for trans feminine folks, it's even, yeah. it's even worse because we're getting fed this line about, you know, like your libido is just going to crash, you know? And so you have yeah. to have this like, we're forced to have all of these trade-offs where, you know, like the resolution of gender, dys you can either resolve gender dysphoria, you know, um, or you can have a sex life that is familiar to you. Mm -hmm. the, and that probably isn't serving you necessarily and is, and is activating some of the dysphoria. And it's like, that's a false dichotomy. Why do I have to choose? Absolutely. And why aren't we applying um, work like Emily Nagoski's, you know, that's based on like Meredith Chiver's work and on, um, on, uh, oh, uh, I, I, there's so many, you know, who, um, you know, who are doing this incredible work, but are they, their research questions are so limited to cis folks. And, um, I once had an endocrinologist at a WPATH training. I talked to them. I went up to them afterwards and I, I talked to them about like, you know, uh, responsive desire and spontaneous desire. And he said to me, 
yeah, you know, there's one, not a whole lot of research out there that support, uh, you know, to support this in trans populations. First cop out. Second, which really knocked me back on my heels was um, this is too nuanced for our clients. Yes, I've heard that from so many cis providers. This is too complex. This is too nuanced, which for me, uh, I'm going to go into a rant and I apologize right now. It's the infantilizing of trans and non-binary folks, which I am furious about. Um, Maybe it's because I'm about to turn 50 and I've been going through perimenopause, which people, by the way, should talk way more about perimenopause and menopause in trans folks. And Heather Corinna does have a trans-inclusive book on menopause that's going to come out and I can't wait to run and buy it. Absolutely. I was like, yes, we need this. I needed this like 10 years ago when this terrible process started. Um, But this infantilizing that cis providers have of trans folks, this is too nuanced. People won't get it. This is not for the general public. When in fact, trans communities have been supporting one another for decades in like talking to each other, understanding what happens to our bodies, because let's face it, medical providers don't know what's happening to our bodies, uh, figuring it out, uh, reading medical texts, uh, you know, educating ourselves and educating one another. It is so patronizing. And it is this infantilizing that, um, you know, and I feel it both as a disabled person and as a trans person, I've seen it again and again, even as a provider, sometimes I'm seen as less competent or less knowledgeable. People are like, oh my God, I I looked at your CV and it's so impressive. And I'm like, why are you so surprised? I always want to ask that. I've asked it sometimes and people get, you know, very worked up, but like, why is this surprising? Am I not supposed to be smart or have studied or have done all the things I've done by my age? What What is the implicit bias, right? Anyway, sorry, that I could go on on that rant, but it sounds like there was some of that maybe going on with this idea of non-nuanced or... Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and I would even go so far as to say that it is a failure of informed consent. Yes. And even go so far as to skirt the line of malpractice. Absolutely. Say more about that because I'm so excited about it. And I don't want to hear my voice. I want to hear yours. Oh, sure. So like, (laughs) I I mean, what I mean by that is like, like the principle of informed consent is one in which we are disclosing all of the risks, all of the benefits that we know and that we can name of treatment, you know, and what, what is involved, what you might be able to expect. And, you know, and, and it's all about like the client being able to make an informed risk aware decision about their bodies. It's, it's a bodily autonomy thing. Um, And, um, and so there is no such thing as too nuanced for a client or a patient. If we are saying that, then we are, you know, we're failing in our, in our duty and we're resting on, um, on these outdated models, you know, and, um, you know, things like, and the, the other piece of, you know, besides like, you know, applying this work is that coming from where I do as a literature and history person, like I don't always, I see how science and evidence-based work 
can be very helpful. And I can also see like, we can't always hang our hats on it. And as from an activist perspective, and, and be sure that it's going to always support us um, in the ways that we want it to. Um, whereas like, I am attuned to language, to rhetoric, to, to image, and how like they bring forth certain realities of their own and that we, that we internalize and, you know, and that the insidious thing about them is that, that these cultural scripts, these narratives that we internalize are, um, the dominant, um, uh, the dominant group's way of unconsciously um, having us serve as the tools of our own erasure. Oh, absolutely. Because it's like even, you know, science has this, um, is seen in the past, you know, not that science is not helpful, but often people understand it as science is always objective, right? Mm -hmm. But the reality is that actually talking about nuance is that the way we ask questions, what we choose to research, how we choose to frame things is full of ideology. Just this morning, I was talking to other colleagues about how gender essentialism. So the idea that there are two genders, you know, male and female uh, is also really, and, and that's the natural, in air quotes, order of things. It's rooted in biological determinism, you know, which is really uh, this idea that our biology determines certain traits, including behaviors, you know, that we have innate traits because of our biology, which a lot of actually really racist science is based on, like the science, in air quotes again, of IQ and so on, is incredibly racist because of the biological determinism piece. And we need to kind of scratch the surface to find that rhetoric, right? Yeah. And, um, and, and our field is full of it. The field yeah. of sex therapy is full of it. The field of trans health is full of it. And, and so it, it does become this complex dance of like really scraping layers and layers. And I feel like that in some ways, um, that's what you're doing in the book is really let's talk about uh, trans folks and sex and sexuality and let's do it in a really informed way. Mm -hmm. um, but also in a very, in a way that's not grounded in, only in cis assumptions, because, uh, you know, there's been very little work, I think, in the field that is, doesn't come from that kind of, you know, even when it's trans inclusive, still really gender essentialist place. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and even when I was trained, we talked about natal sex and biological sex. And now I would never use those words because I know better. But those were the words that were thrown around in the field as if they were the truth, right? As as recently as like five years ago, you know, oh, absolutely. We're not talking 50 years ago. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and to give you an example, like um, I have a friend who um, is a um, who is a curator of queer periodicals at the Library of Congress and they do incredible work. Um, their name is Med Meg Metcalf and um and they, I was visiting them and they showed me these um, journals that, um, and zines basically, that trans folks were writing 
in the like one or two years after um, Harry Benjamin published mm -hmm. the transsexual phenomenon. So we're talking like 1967, 68, 69. And they are quoting wholesale um you know, passages from the transsexual phenomenon and as ways of like, this is what you have to tell a medical provider in order to gain access to this stuff, you know, like Absolutely. by all means, like deny your sexuality to, you know, hate your hate on your body all you want. And then like, and then go home and, and, you know, feel differently about, um, about things. Um, and, but the, the insidious thing that happens is that because we then, you know, like after decades of having to prepare ourselves for this kind of, um, you know, discussion with providers, that it then becomes part of the ways that we even speak about our own experiencing. I mean, really? like, I'm not saying that like gender dysphoria is not a thing, or that gender euphoria isn't a thing, but like there is a history in it being defined primarily by white cis dudes. Yeah. And, and it's not that there isn't, you know, like a, I mean, I certainly experienced dysphoria um, and euphoria, um, but I, I try to kind of divorce it from the ways that, that it's um, talked about in works written by cis folks, um, because I don't want to be defined by that. I want to be defined by my own experience, and I want to be informed by the particular experience of my clients. Absolutely. And, and our experiences are actually so much more nuanced, right? I remember going to a WPATH conference a few years ago, and and it does become in this insidious thing where even cis providers who've worked in the field a long time start to believe that that's how trans folks are, right? So I was talking to providers like, well, this is like how trans men are because I've talked to like hundreds of people over the years, and I'm like, and you never got suspicious that you've literally have been fed one narrative about their sexuality, you know? Or another provider was like, well, you know, if if trans men are having kind of penetrative sex in their frontal, like, does that really mean, are they gay or are they not? Which, of course, it's like the underlining assumption is, well, are they, you know, what defines masculinity? I'm like, well, you tell me what defines masculinity. When cis men are having uh, anal sex, are, are they are gay? Like, you use what you got, and if you got two holes, like, why is it not okay to have penetrative sex and whatever? Um, and um, it was very hard for those providers to get their mind around this kind of um, tr in internalized transphobia and like cisgenderist outlook, right? Mm -hmm. That looked at kind of queer transsexualities that are inherently suspicious because then it makes your gender suspicious, right? And they can't even see that actually the way they're looking at it is not very nuanced. I'm like, well, but you know that gender and sexuality are separate. So what's what's the problem here, right? And when I put it that way, they were like, yes, but. And I was like, I don't, I don't see the but here. If gender and sexuality are two different things, you can be like a trans lesbian or a trans gay dude and a non-binary queer, whatever you want to be in my books. 
Um, but for providers, it's really hard to wrap around their head around that because inherently they're not really seeing some of our identities are completely legitimate, is my suspicion. I don't know if you've ever run into that, but I sure have. <laughs> oh, totally. And and you know, and and I think like queerness and you know and and the the queering of the field is 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 hard for folks to imagine sometimes, um, you know, like um, that's not an excuse for them, but like yeah. they, they, they have to do the work, but like, I think one of the gifts of queerness and being in this like multi-orgasmic polymorphously perverse playground of wonder that is my body um, is that, um, is that like, I don't have to follow any, any of the scripts. I don't, I can use my clit for, for penetrative sex. If like, if a, a partner, you know, and I discussed that and we negotiated and, and we're both down for that, I can, um, you know, uh, like I, where I can not involve genitals at all. Exactly. And, um, or it doesn't assume that like, like, for example, like, um, there's, uh, I was talking to a friend about like who had had, um, top surgery recently. And they were saying like, you know, so many of my partners just avoid my chest entirely thinking that like that dysphoria lives there. And it's like, no, I <laughs> want you to interact with my chest. Like, I just want you to interact with it in a particular way or like, you know, like there's, there's nothing, for example, like in, in kink, you know, we, we generally there's in cis het kink, you know, it's like there's, there's tops and tops are dominance and bottoms are submissives. And it's like, no, in queer DS, a, uh, you can be a, 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 a submissive who tops and you can be a dominant who bottoms and you can switch. Um, and it doesn't, it's all about the intention and the energy that you're bringing to the experience. I love that. And there's so much more expansiveness and so much more nuance to, to trans sex than most providers even realize that in some way it does go back to that biological de determinism, right? There is this, um, what in somatic um, therapy sometimes we call this overcoupling, when things that don't belong together go together, this overcoupling with bodies and gender, right? Mm -hmm. And so when those folks are like, I can't get my head around kind of trans queerness, what they're really saying is that I can't uncouple somebody's genitals from my perception of their gender identity, right? But when we actually liberate our bodies, I would say, and it's just like, this is my body. So it's a non-binary body. It's not a masculine or a feminine body. It's not a not male-bodied or female-bodied, you know, and, and I've had to learn how to uncouple this. I've used all those terms that I would never use now, you know, 10 years later. And it is a process of really undoing so much of what we learned is science in air quotes mm -hmm. again, <laughs> because actually I was like, I don't know my chromosomal makeup. Very few people know their chromosomal makeup. There is, and, and why do we have to say that those genitals are male and those genitals are females? They're just, diff they're just genitals. 
Yeah. Um, and they their gender identity belongs to the person, not to the body part, right? And when you free yourself up from that, the possibilities are endless, really. Exactly. Like, I, I mean, it, it, just confining oneself to, like, playing with genitals. Like, um, there's a certified sex therapist, uh, sex educator, Jamie Joy, um, based in, in Philly. And... Um, they talk about um, in their trainings, like bobbing and swirling for um, for oral sex. And we, for oral sex, we so often will say like, okay, well, penises are bobbed and uh, clitorises and vulvas in general are, um, front holes are, are, are swirled. And like, that's just the way that it is. And, and it's like, who says? Um, I into who exactly? Yeah, like I, I mean, you know, I've I, I've had partners, you know, who like really wanted the experience, the energy of me giving them a blowjob, mm-hmm. and or like you know, um, and that's really important, you know, to be able to just say like, okay, let's approach our bodies and our partner's bodies from a completely beginner's mind. Let's um, it's kind of like with sex toys, for example. And um, in, in kink, we, we talk about pervertibles and, you know, and pervertibles are, you know, it's like you go to the hardware store or to like a kitchen um, supply store. It's like and, anything. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you just like, you take something that's for like a very vanilla purpose, um, like a wooden spoon or a rug beater, and then you use it to wail on somebody um, mm-hmm. consensually. Um, and, um, and like, why can't our bodies be like that? I mean, and that's the kind of move that I wanted to make is that like, there's nothing that says that um, that our bodies need to be used in particular ways um, or enjoyed in particular ways. Um, I mean, that's just limiting and boring. <laughs> exactly. Well, and what uh, you know, what strikes me as you were saying that is that so much of what we do as sex therapists, I think is actually helping our client broaden their idea of what sex and intimacy is, right? Even when I've I've worked with cishet couples where, Mm -hmm. you know, there's maybe just some good old-fashioned erectile dysfunction or, you know, uh, just really the classic of sex therapy, right? Erectile dysfunction, uh, uh, vulvodynia, some genital pain, some low desire, different, you know, interests in sex. Those are kind of your staple of sex therapies, I would call them. Um, A lot of the work we do is like broaden your idea about what sex is or what intimacy is, right? And here we are, like a whole community of like trans folks and queer folks going, oh, we've been doing that for like, like, hundreds and hundreds of years. So we got something to say on the subject, actually, that could benefit cishet people. Like that framework that you're just talking about is not just for trans folks. Like uh, a lot of cishet folks could really benefit, in my experience as a therapist, from broadening out and querying, so to speak, 
their sex life, letting go of gender roles, letting go of expectations of what sex is just can really help people flourish, I think. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like, I, you know, like the staple, uh, one of the staples of sex therapy, like erectile dysfunction, like that is, that is a construction of, yes. of like, Viagra and Cialis, you know, really creating mm-hmm. that kind of dis- the very notion of a sexual dysfunction. Um, and it's not that like, and, and I think about like, you know, f- folks with penises and testicles, like, why aren't you all muffing? Um, you know, do you want to explain what muffing is for yeah, those who uh, sure. don't know what muffing is? <laughs> okay, so um, first of all, all bodies, um, all bodies of all genders have inguinal canals, and these are like just under the pelvic bone and on either side. And it's for folks who have um, testicles; they are the canals through which, like the um, the testicles go up and descend. So like, you know, shrinkage, for example, like it's the, it's the, uh, testicles going up into the inguinal canals. It just so happens that the inguinal canals are packed with nerves. And this was observed by Mira Bellwether, um, and, Mm -hmm. and coined, um, in fucking trans women. Um, there's all these nerve clusters that are intersecting with the inguinal canals. And so like, I mean, this is trans ingenuity at its finest. <laughs> finest, yes. <laughs> like, okay. So like, and for cis folks with testicles, like you're used to having the inguinal canals palpated or penetrated mm-hmm. um, as part of like an inguinal hernia exam, which you, you know, you might get um, as part of like a, a yearly physical. Um, after a certain age in particular. Um, and like, but so muffing is basically you invaginate, which is to say you you push the testicles up back into the inguinal canals um, with like, you follow it with a finger and you basically use the, um, the, the skin of the testicles as a um, you know, as a cot, basically for your finger, and you can feel it when it's when it's there when you've hit that groove, and you can like apply a vibrator to the to the top of the finger. You know, that's I mean, you can feel the finger when when somebody is muffing you right. You can feel that, and it is it can be intensely pleasurable, and so like. There is no reason why we should be talking about like flaccid penises as a bad thing. Like, um, you know, like, yeah, like if you want to have a particular kind of sex, you want to use your penis for penetrative purposes, like, okay, fine. That's, that's something, you know, to maybe work with. But also there's just so much, it's not like the nerves aren't still there um, when a penis is flaccid. 
Well, and most people, you know, yes, sometimes people do want to have PIV, penis and vagina sex for a specific reason and fine. But most people, what they're looking for is I still want to feel pleasure. I still want to feel connected. I still want to enjoy, you know, feel kind of um, uh, this sexual connection with my partner. And those things are not only rich through PIV, exactly, which is why I'm always like, actually, you know, um, Queer folks and trans folks have a lot to offer to the field of sex therapy, even though there is this idea that the field is so kind of cishet dominated because I'm like, well, like you said, trans ingenuity at its best, right? It's like um, there is no reason why uh, like cis folks with a penis couldn't be taught this technique, but they're often not but they're sex therapists, right? And yet, um, and it could be something that's talked about even with cis-set couples. How do you give each other pleasure? Are there other ways? You know, we talk about sensate focus, but we don't then, which is a technique which encourages people to explore each other erotically without concentrating on genitals so much, which is great and valuable in its own right. But what about all the other things, right, um, that people could be doing to still achieve the same goals of pleasure and connection that don't fall into that PIV script, like the cultural script that you were talking about earlier? Well, and here you are talking about pleasure and connection. And how often is that left out of our playbook? Oh, yes. Let's talk about that. Thank you for bringing that up. You know, when we think about trans health and when we think about trans people going to see therapists, it's always transition, it's always a partner having trouble with their partner coming out. It's it's always like doom and gloom and dysphoria. Oh. And it's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's so depressing and even... <laughs> You know, it has to be a problem. And I'm even finding myself when I was writing the book on like um, the chapter, you know, on trans sex, I was like, oh, yes, I, I still made it about a problem <laughs> because we think about going to therapy for problems. Right. But yes, let's talk about how why I loved your book is because it does broaden that out. Right. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, we talk about a lot of things. We talk about function a lot of times and performance and orgasm. And indeed, like the entire chapter, the sexual dysfunction chapter of the DSM-5 Mm -hmm. is all about that. Um, It's all about, you know, this, and it's so cis penis and vagina centered. And, um, you know, because it assumes that people that the only way to have functional sex is for, um, you know, penises to be hard crotch rockets and mm-hmm. for um, front holes to be these, you know, supple, warm, wet. receptive. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah. I, I, I mean, sure, but also it's, it's a yes and thing. And, yes. and I think that if, um, if, we need to be talking about pleasure and we need to be centering pleasure in the conversation. And, and like, I, I even when I'm talking to my like cishet clients, you know, about like, for example, like um, difficulty achieving orgasm, I'm always saying like, okay, like I I get that the orgasm is a goal and orgasms are great. Not going to knock them, love them. But like if you, it's like a watch pot that never boils. Like if, yes. if you are concentrating 
your entire experience on the um, the appearance of this orgasm, it's probably not going to happen. You're so you're going to be so in your head about it. Um, whereas, like, and you're missing out on all of the things that all of the pleasure that you may be experiencing along the way that can help you access that orgasm. Um, so like, I mean, the way that I think about it is that, you know, it's like, think about running, like something that I hate doing, by the way, the only way that I run is when I'm running away from someone. But, um, but, you know, for my friends who like running, um, you know, they talk to me about like, you know, the calm that comes over them. Yeah. Freaks. Um, But, (laughs) um, but I see it, you know, and, um, and, and I think like part of it is like, you can either run for the destination or you can run and recognize like I am running barefoot and, and there's these blades of grass that are tickling the soles of my feet. And oh, there's a sun sunset over there, and aren't the clouds pretty? And um, don't I feel just so alive as I'm doing this? I mean, mm-hmm. that's what we should be paying attention to. But like, when we're concentrating on function and performance, we're foreclosing conversations um, about like what sex could be or what let's broaden this, you know, what eroticism is, what eros is. Yeah. Um, They are broadening it out to that eros, that kind of life force, right? That, And I love that you use running. I actually used to love running. I was a runner, but because my disabilities meant that I, I had to stop running at some point. And, you know, even in my 30s, I kept going, I can still run. And then my body was like, haha, just kidding. And one of the things I had to learn was how do I access that feeling of full aliveness and calm and all of the things I felt running through other channels. Cause that is not, I can still access those experiences, just not through running. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I had to learn, like, how do I, how can I have some biking was great. Cause I was like, you can still go fast and you can have some of the similar experiences. If it's different, but you know, uh, you kind of adapt, right. Hopefully we're adaptable humans. But I love that you broaden it out because it's not just about that kind of precise pleasure. It's about feeling alive in our bodies, right? And that's what I love about your book, that it's not just like, this is how trans people can have sex and this is what providers should know. But this is how can how can we support trans folks in feeling fully alive and embodied in their in our full erotic potential, right? Which is something that we don't talk about generally in sex therapy or trans health in my experience, right? Well, and then that also, you know, and I, I chose the word like erotic embodiment for a very particular mm-hmm. reason. You know, it's like, yes, transsexualities, but, but like, what about folks who like graze folks who, you know, may enjoy sex occasionally or, or may just like enjoy cuddling or kink? Yeah far more than like what we would describe as sex. And so like, Mm -hmm. so when we're talking about erotic embodiment, it's like, how is it yummy to just like enjoy make out, making out with somebody or like, um, or feeling 
cuddled, like whether one is cuddling oneself um, with like a self hug or mm -hmm. one, when one is being cuddled by another and especially during the pandemic, especially during the pandemic yes. when we feel so cut off and, and that, that lack of connection and the touch hunger, like it's about the erotic moments and, it, and it's not so much about the sexual moments. So I really want to think of it more broadly than that. Um, yeah, like I'm talking mostly about, um, you know, transsexualities, but, you know, but included in that is like, um, there's a term in the leather community, leather sex, which, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it's not about the, it, it's not about what like cis het vanilla folks do. It's, it can be, but it can also be like, it's the intention and the energy that you're bringing to it. And are you having a good time? That's the important thing. I, and and I love that. I love that talking about the intention and the energy because, you know, the reality is that sex and sexuality is so much more nuanced, right, than the world tells us. It's like you, I don't know, you know, you grow up and you see those movies where like the men, people are attracted to each other and it all fades to black. You know, I was born in the 70s. It did always fade it to black and you don't know what's happening, right? And I was brought up Catholic. And um, and then I was like, there is like a whole world of stuff that can happen. And also those things don't always have to go with romance either. You know, sex might go together with love. It, it might not. It can mm -hmm. be a both end. And also what even is love, right? And that could be a lighter, a lighter conversation. And, and what I love about your book, even though, it is really sound in terms of if a provider, I want every provider to read it. If a provider picks it up, you know, there's a lot of sound stuff for providers, but there is this message about kind of intention and energy and eroticism and embodiment and trans joy ultimately, right? Yeah. Uh, at least that's the feel I got from it, that this was really about supporting this, this fully embodied trans joy through the lens of sexuality. But yeah, yeah. there's a incredible, uh, and I talk about um, this story in the book a, a lot. Um, there's a, um, my favorite queer trans kink erotica writer, Zen West, who um, passed away in August, September of this, of last year, mm -hmm. um, had this, uh, short story collection, show yourself to me. And the last story strong has this wonderful, it's a story about gender play. And, um, they have this line, um, thinking of gender as an elaborate sex toy. And, and I've just, I've been captivated with that image, you know, like how can gender be an elaborate sex toy? Like, how can our bodies be an elaborate sex toy? Um, and, um, you know, I, I also talk about polymorphous perversity in the book, you know, which is, it's, it's a, a concept that originates in Freud um, um, and the kind of the psychosexual uh, stages of development. But you can throw all of that out. What it means is it's, it's that a disposition that all of our bodies have throughout the life cycle to experience pleasure in multiple ways 
and in multiple zones of the body, that it's not just confined to the genitals. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's what the whole like, you know, anal stage, oral yeah. stage stuff was for. It, it was talking about polymorphous perversity. And yes, he then went, took it in some really awful directions. <laughs> yes. But, but I really love that concept. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that is so queer and trans. And you talk about, I'm so glad that, that that's the message that you drew from the book, because that's really, you know, so often the, the story that we have, if, to listen to cis people or to mm-hmm. watch like representations of trans folks until like five years ago, um, um, and the movie, uh, the d- documentary Disclosure does a really good job at highlighting that. Absolutely. Um, is that, you know, like, um, we are, to see that representation, like, we are supposed to be these sad, traumatized, constantly oppressed, loveless, sexless pitiful creatures. And why would I want to transition if I were, you know, if all I had to look forward to was just being a pitiful creature? Um, We then have to trick people to fall in love with us, right? That's like, there has to be a certain hiding, you know, whether it's like uh, uh, boys don't cry or whether it's other, you know, whether it's trans masculine or trans feminine folks, there always has to be a certain amount of hiding, a certain amount of conforming to dominant ideas about what gender is, mm-hmm. you know, it's, yeah, like that's so messed up. Yeah. It's so <laughs> messed up. And, and like, you know, I think about, yes, we experience a great deal of intergenerational trauma and we Absolutely. need to, and collective trauma and event-based trauma and minority stress. And all of that is, is the case. I'm not saying that that's not, you know, I'm not saying mm-hmm. that yeah. it's not a reality for um, many trans and non-binary folks, if not most. Um, what I am saying is that cis folks concentrate exclusively on the intergenerational trauma and not on the intergenerational wisdom. Yes. And, and what is like baked into our communities um, there is so much that we're passing, like stuff about muffing. You know, you're talking about mm-hmm. like the zines and the and the blogs and the the Tumblr posts and things like that, like and social media accounts, Reddit's. Um, although Reddit can be a dumpster fire too, <laughs> um, but like, um, but like, how can we tap into that, like muffing is, is part of that. The hanky code is mm-hmm. part of that intergenerational wisdom. It's that way that we tap into the fact that we have a lineage. Um, we have ancestors. Um, and while our, our history is not one of like, you know, the homonormative, you know, progress narrative, mm-hmm. it's not, it's, there's a lot of struggle, but there's a lot of joy in that struggle. And I, I wrote the second half of the book while in the midst of the pandemic. And, um, and I found myself as I was reading, as, as I was, you know, just trying to 
figure out how am I going to sit with this? How am I going to sit with my clients during this? Because I am not okay. I'm suddenly, I started turning to like books like Coming to Power or, um, and Amber Hollabaugh's, um, you know, My Dangerous Desires and mm. Douglas Crimp's essay, um, um, How to Be Promiscuous in an Epidemic. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, and these are, you know, voices from the eighties and nineties. Yes. You know, we know as queer and trans folks, how to take care of one another in the face of a larger society that, pardon my language, doesn't give a flying fuck oh, about absolutely. us mm -hmm. and is actively seeking to harm us at, at yes. times. Um, we have we are the ones responsible for our communities of care. Queer folks are responsible for the creation of safer sex yeah. um, models. Um, like and and that's that's the intergenerational wisdom I'm talking about. We are inheriting that just as much as we are inheriting all of the fucked up settler colonialist, bullshit of like displacement and genocide all of that is there and all of that we are we are also um we are also that's also our legacy um and our lineage but so is the joy absolutely it's you know that and and that belonging the joy and the belonging you know it's like when my friend, Dr. Pavini Moray talks about gender-blessed ancestors, right? That when we can connect to those kind of gender-blessed ancestors, transcestors, whatever we want to call them, like there is a, a belonging to a resilience and a healing and a knowing that is so much greater than, than us in this moment, right? And, and oh, yeah, that makes sense. I, I, you know, there is comfort in that belonging yeah. um, in so many ways. Oh. I felt so hugged. <laughs> you know, like it, it, it made me feel part of something larger than myself. Yes. And, um, you know, like I live in a rural environment and, um, and I practice in a rural environment. And so it's very easy for me to feel cut off from community. Mm. Like there's, it's not like there's a leather dyke bar, um, <laughs> down, the know, road. Down, the, down the road, you know, <laughs> yeah. like I, even during a pandemic, even not during a pandemic, I can't go to one of those. Um, you know, so, but I can, I can tap into that lineage Absolutely. and that's powerful and that's supportive. Mm. That's beautiful. Oh, I feel like I could keep talking to you for another like five or six hours, but I want to be respectful of your <laughs> time. <laughs> and I was like, this is great. Maybe we should have a part two. And I'm all about it. <laughs> so maybe we'll have a part two at some point and kind of pick it up where we left off. And but this is such a wonderful kind of place to start winding down from. And one of the questions I always ask is that, is there anything we haven't talked about that you were really hoping to share um, with the gender stories listeners, and maybe we maybe we've gone all the places we wanted to go. But if there is something, um, yeah, anything else that you wanted to add? Oh gosh, that's such a great question. Um, and I should have been prepared for it. Um, 
And um, well, I didn't send it to you beforehand to be completely <laughs> transparent with the listeners, so it's really not your fault. It's mine. I usually send an email saying, "I will ask you this," but no, you're being totally put on the spot. Um, I would say, I I think the only thing we we didn't talk about, and that I I always like to talk about is, you know, the desirability politics piece. Yes. Say more about that. (laughs) Um, So desirability politics uh, particularly comes out of um, black fat femmes like um, Hunter Shackelford. Um, There's also a great article by uh, Caleb Luna. Um, And, um, and it's all about like how, our desire, um, how like we we generally think about like attraction and desire as a um, as this deeply idiosyncratic, subjective thing. You know, it's like I like who I like, um, and and I think one of the the problems that we have is that. That in and that desirability, the politics of desirability really clues us into is that there's an element of cultural construction there and a huge Absolutely. element. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where a lot of like the dating while trans stuff comes in is that trans folks and non binary folks, with respect to like dating and fucking cis folks, because like T for T all the way. Um, <laughs> you know, um, but, um, you know, that there's this idea that we are not seen as objects of desire Mm -hmm. and, um, disabled bodies suffer from this, um, problem, fat bodies, Mm -hmm. um, elder bodies, many BIPOC bodies in particular cultural context. And, um, and I really wanted to, point out and not because like I want folks to just like experiment with with me you know like oh well you know like I need to be woke so I'm gonna I'm gonna go and and uh and date um date a trans person Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I am saying that like interrogate desire we need to be interrogating desire and and who we afford desirability and desire ability the ability to desire is the other piece of it yeah oh i love that so much i often talk to my clients about uh, you know there's good research about visual diet and how it impacts the folks we're attracted to switch up your visual diet you might be surprised especially if you're having you know a lot of trans folks i think sometimes uh we can have trouble finding ourselves desirable Right, because of that kind of uh, dominant discourse and the kind of images that we see around ourselves, especially if we're not really falling within that kind of um, dominant norm, right? Mm-hmm. It's like if you are like a female at birth and you don't have like a six pack and are young and can be on the cover of men's health, you know, how are you even going to find yourself desirable, right? And trans feminine folks also, if they're not, you know, feminine in a certain way that's seen as desirable. For whatever reason, again, you know, usually size has something to do with it. Usually even colorism comes into it, right? Mm-hmm. And all of those things. And yeah, it's like once you start questioning, the, you know, even desire, it's like, well, 
again, biological determinism. Is it really biologically determined or are we just used to seeing, being told this is what's attractive and this is what's not? And then we see ourselves and each other through those lenses, right? So I'm glad you talked about that. Absolutely. And, And once we start talking about that and breaking apart desirability, we can then talk about our entitlement to pleasure and our entitlement to desire that we deserve to have our desires, our boundaries, our needs met um, with partners that we're negotiating with, um, you know, in, in, in a risk-informed way. Um, and we deserve to experience pleasure. Like um, once you deconstruct desirability, you can deconstruct the whole scarcity model bullshit that tells us that like our desire is less than our bodies are less than, and we should just take what we, what we can get. Which then it's grounds for such abuse in relationships, especially Mm -hmm. since trans relationships sometimes, but sometimes sadly even in T4T relationships too. But it's that because of that scarcity model, right? Oh, I'll just, who else is going to want me? No, there's a whole world out there um, of people. And if nothing else, like we we can find ourselves desirable and worthy of all of that that you just described. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I could talk with you forever about this. But yes, so we deserve pleasure. And I think that your wonderful book is going to help so many providers uh, and providers in that really broad definition of providers support uh, so many more trans folks towards finding pleasure. And so, yeah, it's coming out really soon in May 2021. And also, I hope we can have more of those conversations and I'm just so excited to be sharing a field with you, Lucy. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on Gender Stories today. Thank you for having me. This was such a joy and delight. And um, I could say the same thing about my admiration and esteem for being in the same field with you. It's such a privilege. I love this mutual admiration moment. And dear listeners, I don't worry, I'm going to put in the episode description how you can find out more about Lucy's work, her website and the book and where you can get the book from and pre-order it if you want to. And in the meantime, I hope you can find many, many ways to pleasure and I'll see you uh, at our next episode. And goodbye for now. <laughs>